This is Joe Schunkweiler. Uh, I lead adoption and training here at Allidade, and welcome to the ACO Show. And this is Josh Israel. I'm a physician and a medical director here at Allidade. And today is November 14th, and we are here once again, and hopefully not for the last time, with Travis Broom. Travis is the Vice President of Policy at Allidade. And what we want to talk about today are some of the changes to the Medicare payment regulations that CMS, which is the Center for Medicare and Medicaid, released early this month. Now, these regulatory changes can often be confusing, but they drive very important changes to how healthcare is delivered. And Travis is the sage here at Allidade who helps us understand what these changes mean, and in particular, what we can expect to see for those of us working in the world of accountable care organizations. Travis, why don't we start with uh, the changes to the physician fee schedule? Sure, and thanks for for having me, guys. You know, the, earlier last month, the physician fee schedule, basically shorthand for how Medicare pays docs, um, was released in their final rule, just like it is every single year. This year had something really unique in its proposal, um, and for those who might not have been in part of regulations before there's a proposal 60 days people comment and they get public feedback cms thinks about those comments for a month or two and then they publish the final rule so in that proposal they really proposed fundamentally changing how evaluation and management services are paid and when you think of evaluation and management services you think basically how do we pay for the physician taking the time to talk to the patient, to review medical records, to apply their training, to apply their experience, basically their thought time to the situation um, in order to make diagnoses, develop treatment plans, and order downstream things. And currently there's five levels of that depending on how hard it is and how much time it takes and the complexity of it. And because you have to document how complex and how difficult it is, it kind of creates a documentation headache. It takes a lot of documentation to be able to say this patient deserved a level five level of service and this patient called for a level two level of service. And those documentation guidelines have been around since 1997. Obviously a lot has happened since then, you know, electronic health records, um, certainly we've learned a lot more medicine since then. Um, and of course, new payment models like accountable care. And the reason they're so old is it's just really hard to get physicians and payers and everybody together to disagree on, or not to agree. Yeah, that's not hard. Right, right, that's yeah, not hard. Yeah. Getting to disagree is not hard. Getting them to agree on the changes is really hard. And so just for the folks that don't live in this every day, yeah. what you're talking about is usually shorthanded as E&M, right. right? The E&M codes, yeah. the E&M levels. E&M, established patient visit 99212, level two, right? Awesome. Um, and. So CMS, they knew they wanted to do something about this, but just like you know, many people before them for the last two decades, knew they couldn't really tackle the requirements themselves head on. 
So the workaround they came up with was, well, we'll just pay levels two through five the same. And if we're paying the same, as long as you've documented a level two, then you, the payment is justified. So basically the idea was by taking the payment and making the payment same, we basically take the auditors out of the equation. Physicians need their own medical notes. They need records. They need to know what happened with the patients. They need to be able to share those for clinical purposes. But basically by making a single payment rate, we'll take the payment auditor out of the equation. You no longer have to write notes for the payment auditor. You just write notes for yourself. So the goal would be to decrease the administrative burden at the physician level. Yeah, assuming that the, the payment, the, the the burden was the payment auditor, payment idea, then this would reduce it. Um, right, because we hear physicians saying they're having to just fill the chart full of junk, mm-hmm. to, you know, that's not helpful to the patient or anybody just to meet these codes. Correct. Yeah. Yep. And, and physicians say that all the time. They talk about it, everything else. And so this was a way of, well, if payment is the driver for a lot of that unnecessary documentation, this in theory would get rid of it. So they came out with that proposal, lots and lots of feedback on it, most of it negative. Hmm. And it's important to understand why it was negative, and it was negative really for two reasons. One, when physicians, and particularly physician groups, you know, AMA, kind of AFP, um, large groups like Allotted, they looked around and said like, well, okay, well, if Medicare changes this rule and they take their payment auditor out of it, what's really going to change? Like, is, is it really going to reduce the amount of documentation? And, and when, when the physicians sat down and thought about it and really thought through it, they're like, you know what? It might not change that mm-hmm. much. At the end of the day, you know, most physician practices are less than 50% Medicare, so you'll still have other payers. There's still malpractice concerns. You still can be sued for malpractice and we need supporting documentation for that. You would need supporting documentation for other payers. There's other requirements. Certainly there are medical record guidelines that have nothing to do with payment mm-hmm. and everything with just doing a doctor. So the bang wasn't as big as maybe hmm. we thought it was. And then it was messing with bucks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this is really the analysis that Allade did for its practices, and we included a summary of it in our own comments. I'm like, well, if they did this, how much revenue disruption would there be? How much re- different would a practice be paid in 2019 than they would have been in 2018? And we were hoping to see, you know, four or five, six percent would be huge, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, it was much larger than that. We had practices who would see their revenue go up by as much as 30%, and we had other practices who would see their revenue go down by as much as 20%. Mm. Um, So there was just a lot of variation in how this would impact the revenue of the practices. Now, you can imagine these things are somewhat self-correcting. Over years, the practices that were losers would find ways to you know, fix that, and the practices that were big winners wouldn't be able to sustain that forever. But next year, if this had been finalized for 2019, it would have been very disruptive on the revenue side for a bang that wasn't as big as maybe we thought it was mm-hmm. when, when it was first proposed. So what did CMS do? So the CMS took that information and they said, you know, we still believe that a single payment rate is a good idea, but we hear you on the time and the disruption, um, and we also hear you on that the bang might not be as big as it 
we thought it was going to be. The, the payoff might not be as big and reduce burden. So they did two things. One, it was going to be level two and level five. We're going to be collapsed into one. Now it's just level two to level four. So level five visits are used only for the sickest patients a lot of times. So practices that used a lot of level fives had very, very sick populations and were kind of disproportionately affected. So by narrowing it to level two and level through level four, you really take out the extremes, right? I haven't done the analysis, but you can imagine it would take out you know, the extremes and maybe instead of plus 20 and uh, minus 30, it would now be you know, plus 10 and minus 10 or something like that. Um, and then two, they delayed it. They said, right, we kind of agree. We need more time. January 1st, 2019 is too fast. So they delayed it for two years. Effectively, by delaying it two years, though, they basically said, we're going to take two more shots at this. Mm-hmm. You heard me say at the beginning, like, there is a physician fee schedule every single year. So between now and when this would be effective, there'll be two more physician fee schedule rules in which um, the, these issues will all be reconsidered. But the absolute bottom line for you know what, what would have been this highly, highly disruptive change is that it has been delayed. And for all of our physicians who are listening out there, our practice managers, the bottom line is you're going to bill your E&M 99212s, 3s, 4s, and 5s, just like you did last year for 2019. Okay. The so, delay they, is always a uh, like the last tactic on the on the table having worked on the hill it's so funny to i was smiling as you said they delayed it two years knowing that it's going to create um a lot of discussion among members of the senate finance committee and other committees about you know whether that's a permanent delay or whether it's a two-year delay and what it actually looks like so interesting so great so also some changes to telehealth we understand which up till now has been a pretty restrictively applied service right so the telehealth is there's a lot of, Joe just brought up Congress, right? There is a lot of law around telehealth. The the laws around how Medicare traditionally thinks of telehealth are very prescriptive. You have to be in a rural area. You have to be in an originating site, which basically means you can't do it from your house. You have to go to, you know, one clinic to talk to another clinic Um, and, and lots of prescriptions on that. And But CMS changed their interpretation of one of those things. So one of the things was for services that would otherwise be covered by Medicare. So basically, all of the restrictions apply. If I'm getting a service, um, say, you know, a psychiatric service, that if I happen to be in the same place as Dr. Israel, we would do it face-to-face, but we're not in the same place, so we're going to use video communication. But the only difference in the surface is that we're not in the same place. Um, that used to be interpreted by Medicare as basically saying like, well, anything Medicare would pay for. Now Medicare has decided we're gonna interpret that and basically say, well, we're only gonna apply that criteria to services that have a face-to-face equivalent. That So now, if you think about 2018, there are potentially some services that essentially you would never do face-to-face, almost by definition. And some of these were actually already in, like the CPT code book, the, you know, the, the book of all the codes CMS can do. So with that new kind of, we'll call it more liberal interpretation uh, of the law, 
they're proposing basically to allow physicians to now bill for two things they really couldn't bill before. Uh, one is, you know, a phone call or a video conference. If I FaceTime with a patient for 10 minutes, I can now bill for that, even if the patient was at their home or, you know, out and about in the world. And just to be clear, it doesn't need to be on special equipment. Right. So, I mean, you use a phone, you use video conferencing. Again, the kind of the originating sites and everything, all that things doesn't matter. It really is, um, you know, from a payment perspective, they, they don't care how you communicate with the patient through that. Um, and does this mean that what practices used to have to apply for a waiver saying that I'm very rural and this service is necessary, is that gone now? Well, for this service, they're basically saying all of those rules don't apply. Mm-hmm. Now, um, you know, again, back to the idea of like, this is not replacing an office visit. In fact, if the end of your conversation is, and you should come into the office and see me, it no longer becomes separate, separate billing. It would now be bundled with that office visit that will occur. Mm-hmm. So this is really only, again, for something Medicare wasn't paying before at all, which is communication with the patient that doesn't result in kind of billable follow-up, if you will. Or, you know, it doesn't, you know, it's the conversation that, you know, have two doctors in the room, I'm sure both of you had with patients, or you, you have a conversation with them and you go, you basically say, it's okay. If something changes, you know, call me back or whatever. But like, for now, we're done. That's tricky. Most things are going to result in, you know, come on back next month and we can see how it's going. Right. So if it does come back and, and you know, if you do relate to a service or if it's a follow-up from a visit, those are traditionally considered bundled mm-hmm. by Medicare and as part of that core service. Okay. Um, but this would be, you know, again, more of those phone calls on the outside. Um, and then basically... They're also going to start paying for that exact same idea, but replace patient with another physician. So if I need to consult with a physician on a case, um, then I can get paid separately for that time. Hmm. Um, This one potentially is very relatable to our ACO Mm -hmm. work Mm -hmm. um, because it could potentially have the opportunity for our primary care docs. The specialist could always get paid. The person who couldn't get paid before was like the the person making the call, the person picking up the call and providing the extra expertise. They always get paid for their time. Now both people will get paid for their time. And this could potentially allow us to prevent um, some specialist referrals. That's great. All right, and lastly, I understand that there are some changes to the ACO quality measures. And I guess my question that comes with that is why in the world that is in the physician fee schedule? (laughs) Sure. So there's actually several things with uh, MSSP and the physician fee schedule. The physician fee schedule is 2,800, I think, or 600, you know, more than 2,500 pages long. It is that long, not because it takes that long to talk about how much you should pay for a 99213. It's because lots of things get added to it because it happens every year and it's very reliable. Um, And one of those things is update to quality measures. And CMS is trying to stop having unique quality measures across all of their programs and be a little more uniform in their quality measures. So MSSP, Medicare Shared Savings Program, the ACO program, it gets updated at the exact same time as QPP or the Quality Payment Program, uh, otherwise known as MIPS, 
Um, so those measures are the same and cross over as well. And really CMS, you know, we talked about earlier about like they're trying to reduce burden. Reducing burden is actually really, really, really hard when you get into the details. Um, and as we saw before, in quality measurement, um, it's also hard, but it's also been something they've been working on for a lot longer. Everybody's always wanted to reduce quality measures. Um, so they did a lot of the straightforward, which is just getting rid of some measures. Some of the measures were gotten rid of because they're no longer good measures. There were a couple of measures that you know just weren't good practice. Other measures they decided were duplicative with other measures. And, and then finally there's kind of a, a third bucket of measures that just um, have topped out, right? Like if the average score on a measure is 96% among all your people who are doing it, like can, can we just say like everybody's doing it now mm-hmm. we don't have to measure it mm-hmm. anymore. So we got rid of 10 measures, so great. Now we've gotten really down. So kind of what's left? Not only did they get rid of measures, but they also focused. And they really focused in on kind of three areas. One is outcomes. Um, and, and there's four measures I would kind of put in that are left in the outcome bucket. Uh, one is A1C control for diabetic patients, um, depression remission, readmission to hospitals, and um, controlling hypertension, blood pressure. Mm-hmm. Then there's a prevention bucket, and these are all the measures, the classic measures that you think of, right? Did people get their flu shots? Did they, you know, get smoking um, counseling and smoking cessation efforts, um, mammograms, all, all those preventative measures we think about. And then the third bucket is really patient satisfaction. Um, and in the ACO world, this takes the form of a patient survey that goes out to hundreds of patients in every ACO, and they basically ask the patients a whole bunch of questions um, about their care, about their health, um, about their opinions of the care they're receiving from their providers. Um, and this was really the only area where they added new measures. So some of the measures on the survey weren't getting scored before. Um, now they are. The two new ones are basically asking, like, They've always asked you and scored you on, what do you think of the physician? Now they're going to ask you, well, what do you think of the physician's staff? What do you think of the Mm -hmm. office? That's great. Um, And the other one is care coordination, right? Did you actually, it's basically asking questions about, like, if the physician said that you were going to have follow-up, did there, was there actually (laughs) follow-up? Yeah. Okay. And I I don't want to get too much into the details of which ones were removed because Mm -hmm. the providers need to focus this year on the existing measures, but I... I will say that people will not miss a couple of the measures that were removed, particularly the BMI screening and follow-up, because even though it's good for our patients, the documentation was a real pain. Uh, And the same for diabetic eye exams. We know that's good for patients, but uh, getting the records from an outside provider was was often a difficult step, even when the the good work was done. So I don't think anybody will, will miss those two. No, not at all. And, and I think that that is something that CMS was focused on that, you know, they've been asked, to, we've been advocating for a long time of, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, right, like the difference in performance if the average is 96% is not to worry about. There's a, some measures, and you mentioned two of them, where the difference in performance has nothing to do with patient health and has everything to do with how well do you document, mm-hmm. you know. It's, it's kind of a sign of a bad measure if you know, on the reporting, somebody did 80% and somebody else did 50%. But when you go in and look, if you actually spend the time to look at the medical records and look at the claims and everything, you find out like, oh, actually, the reality wasn't 50 and 80. They were both at 70, right? That's a bad measure. Mm -hmm. And um, CMS, I think, 
over the years, over the last few years in particular, has really decided that rather than they used to have a, a posture and, and this you know like i said this was five years ago six years ago of we have to measure these things and we want better measures but we will measure it even if the measure's bad mm-hmm. i think over the last few years you've seen a shift where they're now saying like well we really want to measure that we want to measure um you know obesity and efforts to curtail obesity but we don't have a good way to measure it so we can't now and that's been, I think, a shift of attitude you've seen over the last few years. Travis, it looks like there were also some changes to the outpatient payment system. Can you go through some of that for us? Sure. Well, there were lots and lots of changes there um, that you know kind of don't affect our world mm-hmm. of ACO and primary care. Um, there's one, only really only one change we really want to focus in on that does affect our primary care practices in the ACO world. And this is like the problem of cross subsidies. So healthcare is riddled with cross subsidies, and basically we vastly overpay for this one thing and we underpay for that thing, and it washes out. But that's not a very rational way to think of things. We should pay the right price for an individual service, so we don't have to worry about subsidizing one wrongly priced service with another wrongly priced service, and we shouldn't benefit certain areas for things that don't create value for patients. And one of the things that doesn't create value for patients a lot of times is paying more for the same service when it's in a hospital-owned office versus an independently-owned office or a physician-owned office. Um, Congress had started us down this path a few years ago with the Balanced Budget Act where they basically said, well, any new hospital practices, they don't get paid more than their traditional office practice. But they didn't do anything about the current Mm -hmm. um, groups. So this year, CMS proposed to start removing some of those subsidies to hospital-owned practices, even for existing, what are known Mm -hmm. as off-campus provider-based departments. So basically, and then they finalized this, and they finalized it for a very specific thing. They finalized it for that E&M work we spent so much time talking about in the beginning. So starting in 2020, for clinics that look just like yours, like if a lay person walked up to the clinic and they were like, it was your clinic versus the one that's down the street that was owned by the hospital and they wouldn't know a difference, you know, the one down the street wasn't connected to the hospital building directly, Mm -hmm. you didn't accidentally end up in the ER when you were walking in the door, but it's just a standalone office um, away from you, Um, that office will get paid the exact same as an independent physician-owned practice um, starting in 2020 for those traditional E&M office visits. Um, so that's kind of a first step. Um, and I think it was a very important that CMS took this first step on applying it even to existing hospitals because it's going to kind of give us some guidelines on, well, for the existing folks, what are the subsidies that we can go after that are the kind of the no-brainers, the low-hanging fruit. And the office visit was the most low-hanging fruit of them all, right? You know, the, unlike, say, imaging test, where it might actually be that you want, in a town, you want one fancy imager and five less fancies, and you need to pay more for the fancy imager, right? Like, that's a mm-hmm. debate, and that's a thing, everything else. We're talking about an office visit. You need a physician, you need a medical record, and you need a private room. Right? Like, there's nothing special here. Um, so this was a great place for us to start, uh, for CMS to start 
taking it one step further than Congress did and really starting to get rid of some of the existing subsidies as opposed to just making sure new ones aren't created. And so uh, where folks may see that described in the uh, ever-exciting regulatory press around healthcare as site-neutral payments. Yeah, site-neutral payments. I kind of, yeah, that, that's kind of what it's mm-hmm. called, um, site-neutral. So if the same service, doesn't matter where you get it. Um, and that that's basically the principle. And I think what we've seen now is the first step CMS has taken to applying that principle, not just to new places. But yeah, to me, there's a classic example of something that seems so small and technical, but it's, it's really a big deal. Yep. It, it's, it's huge. I mean, when we think about independent practice, right, um, you know, a lot of physicians that are coming out of residency right now, they're basically have to choose, right? Am I going to start my own practice? Am I going to partner with some physicians who own their own practices and with the intention of becoming a partner someday? Or am I going to go take a salary? from a hospital-owned practice. And right now, because of this subsidy among others, that hospital practice, own practice, can actually offer that new physician a salary that is not supported by what that physician's time can be billed for in an independent environment. So, you know, if you can, if somebody, you know, it's kind of comes to no brighter, right? This is the bad side to subsidies. If you have a subs- one group subsidized, they can offer 20% more salary than the guy who's not subsidized. That's a really competitive environment um, that doesn't make a lot of sense. And this doesn't get rid of all of that 20%, but it certainly takes a big chunk out of it. And hopefully it'll make independent practice more viable, um, both as for our current businesses and then really, I'm you know, hopeful that we'll start to see more and more new physicians um, go the independent route when you combine the fact that site-neutral policies to get rid of the subsidies and combine that with success in value-based models um, and the ability to be successful in, in, as an independent and value-based models. Hopefully those two things will come together um, and more and more physicians will, will choose the independent route um, because we need that to happen. We can't just rely on those who've always made the choice forever. Well, that was great, Travis. Any Anything else was changed that people should know about? Sure. There, there were a few. Um, the, one of the other, the most exciting new rule for us as an ACO um, was a separate rule that wasn't part of physician fee schedule called the Medicare Shared Savings Program, transitioning that program to something called Pathways to Success. And there was a lot of stuff going on in there. Um, and they actually finalized a couple things in the existing rule, and then they left some stuff for early next year. So two quick things that they finalized in the physician fee schedule um, as part that were in that other rule is one, we have a lot of existing ACOs at Allidade. There's, you know, and many, many more after that. Uh, There's over 400 ACOs now in the program. And a lot of them, their contract was gonna end at the end of this year. Um, So they've gotten a six month extension. Um, So all of those ACOs, they've actually already turned in their paperwork um, just a few days ago to request a six month extension from CMS so that, both the physicians and their patients won't have any disruption in, in the, what they've been getting from being in an ACO and the population health work that that entails. Uh, the second thing is CMS is really encouraging, and we encourage as well, um, this idea of voluntary alignment 
right now, if I want um, Josh to be my doctor, like I have to vote with my feet. If the data disagrees with what I want, um, the data wins. I have no ability to, or I have limited ability to tell CMS different. So last year they said, well, all right, patients, you, you can now, Medicare beneficiaries can now say like, I don't care what the data says, this is my doctor. And they can voluntarily align with an ACO. Um, what they couldn't do last year is they couldn't say, I want to align with a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant. And particularly for our healthier Medicare beneficiaries, mm-hmm. um, in most states, all nurse practitioners and physicians, they are supervised by a physician, um, but maybe the beneficiary didn't really know who the physician is or whatever. They know their MP, they know their MPA. Um, and now they can associate with, they can voluntarily, they can choose them um, as, as well as, like I said before, they can choose a physician. So those are the two things that got done. Um, really for, we're still looking for the big stuff um, that's going to affect ACOs. And really the, the two biggest things in the role, one is, is benchmarking. Um, so you know, in an earlier podcast, we talked about going to risk and how mm-hmm. important understanding your benchmark is. So anytime they're changing that target price, like you know that target cost, that goal for the ACO on how much a beneficiary should cost, um, that's a big deal. Um, and they are doing a fair amount of revisions to the benchmark, both in risk and cost and how those are calculated. Um, and so we're still waiting for those and expect to see those early next year. The other big thing, particularly for new ACOs, um, is how fast do you have to take risk? Um, you know, we had the earlier podcast where we talked about risk and it was, you know, how quickly Am I required, as opposed to choosing to, take risk or the risk that if my patient's costs go up, I have to write CMS a check? Um, CMS was saying two years, um, and you have to move to uh, risk that wouldn't bankrupt anybody, but it was risk, right? There's a chance you'd have to write a check. It wouldn't be a bankrupting check, but there's a chance you have to write a check. Um, some folks um, are really pushing or hoping for more time. Um, in that. So that's an, another big thing we'll have to wait and see of how CMS handles all the comments they got asking for more time. You know, they can simply say, no, it's important people move to risk. We're going to keep two years. Um, or they could give us more time and we'll see in January where that ends up. Well, Travis, thank you for joining us and going through this. Uh, I think you really laid it out well. Uh, clearly, with changes to the fee schedule that involve uh, collapsing E&M codes and the delay there, as well as uh, newly uh, rethinking telehealth and how that's provided, as well as the reducing the burden in terms of some of the duplicative quality measures and, and how that impacts the fee schedule. Um, that'll definitely be something that our docs are, are struggling with and, and, and hoping to understand. And then as we think about these site-neutral payments and whether that's a, a foot in the door for a broader change on the site-neutral side or, or just um, they'll stop at the, the E&M visit, um, I think will be particularly interesting. And then for us in the ACO world, of course, that six-month six month extension as well as the voluntary alignment. And then we're all going to be waiting uh, with bated breath for the benchmarking discussion and, and risk down the road. So we hope you'll come back and join us to talk about when all that stuff comes through. All right. Well, thank you very much for having me. Thanks, Travis.